Good afternoon and welcome to the Brussels Chicago Riga Summit. Landmark Summit. Warmly welcome all of you at the NATO headquarters. Our 25th, 17th, first summit meeting of the 21st century. Hello and welcome to NATO Summit Behind the Scenes, the podcast where we explore the machinery that goes into a NATO summit. I'm your host, Bruce. And I'm your host, Mariana. And together, we're speaking to people from inside and outside of NATO about all the work they do surrounding a summit. In our episode with Dylan from NATO's press office, which you should check out if you haven't listened to it already, we talked about how NATO's press and media team works with hundreds of journalists who attend summits. And in this episode, we'll speak to one. Journalists are an essential part of the summit. They ask the critical questions that help clarify the decisions taken by NATO leaders and help make the answers understandable to regular people. That's why in normal times, more than a thousand journalists are present on site to cover a NATO summit, attend press conferences and ask hard hitting questions to the leaders and the secretary general. I have a hard-hitting question for you. Oh, yeah? Is it about my burgeoning career as a jazz clarinetist? Uh, no. Do you play the jazz clarinet? <laughs> Actually, no, which makes sense why it's not your question. Uh, anyway, go ahead. Uh, okay. I was just going to ask, <laughs> who's our guest today? I'm glad you asked that. Our guest today is Guldenur Sonumut. He is a journalist for the Turkish news outlet NTV and has covered summits since the late 90s. As the Brussels bureau chief, he reports on all things NATO and EU. Welcome, Goldener. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. So, as Bruce said, you work for NTV. Can you explain a little what kind of an outlet that is and uh, which outputs you produce for them? Do you write articles or work on TV segments? Just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So, I work mainly for TV. And uh, when there are, for example, summits, I since it's a news network 24-7, at every hour and half an hour, we need to, we need to make the news updates. So, I'm just giving the blunt news. And I'm doing comments at least uh, three times a week for TV about uh, international relations, defense policy, NATO and EU, but generally more based on foreign policy issues. So uh, particularly during summits, I have a very weird way to work because I, but I guess I will explain it later on. And uh, I do updated news about what's going on in the institution, what's going on during the summit, etc. And then I also need to do the same thing for the for the radio, because NTV is a TV, but it also has a TV a radio station. So I also do a kind of news update every hour for the radio. Mm-hmm. And I am a columnist for the same group for the Mediate newspaper, where I write twice a week uh, a column, but it's more a kind of opinion about what's going on, it's big policy, so it's not hot news. Wow. So you can cover things as they happen and then also have some time to reflect on them and explain what they mean uh, to the public. Very, very, very much. So that's why during the summit, it's just hot news. So we have to give an update every hour or half an hour. But then at the end of the at the end of the summit, for example, it's either NATO summit or EU, EU summit. I do have time to do a reflection piece. And then I comment about the decision, how the decision has been taken, what was the controversial part of it, and to go more in deep to uh, uh, the outcome of the uh, of whatever it is. Well, you mentioned that you have a little bit of a, a strange working met- method around summits. Um, so I feel like let's just jump into that to, to begin with. What is it uh, typically like for you? So uh, as far as NATO summit are concerned, you have the very beginning of the summit, which is just uh, the leaders arriving there and the statement of the Secretary General. Before that, Secretary General, all of them 
were doing an, uh, an event with uh, think tanks like GMF or other think tanks. And so this is the basic material. But then up until the conclusion is published, we have nothing. So we have, because since the meeting is in a close hold, it's in a closed session, you can't broadcast anything, you don't know who's talking about what. So you have to prepare it in advance. And at every news hour, you have to give a little bit of something different to the audience. So you can't repeat every half an hour or, or hour what's going on. So therefore, I go to some details of, uh, uh, of the uh, summit declaration, which is not mainstream. For example, in that summit, I focused more on uh, uh, the relation of NATO with uh, uh, Asia-Pacific countries, on women, peace and security, and on these kind of topics. So it gives me or it allows me to, to give some new updates and news to uh, to uh, the auditors. So even though they're locked in a room together, you can still say, we haven't had any you know outcomes from them yet, but this is generally what they're talking about and these are the items on the agenda. Mm-hmm. Very much. Exactly. Very, very much. Okay. And so you mentioned that um, covering a NATO summit is uh, sometimes different to uh, how you would do a foreign ministerial or a defense ministerial. How uh, does it differ from other big international events? So it's it's really, really different uh, comparing to, for example, G20, G7 that I used to cover, UN, uh, General Assembly or EU summit. Because on all these, uh, on all these uh, uh, meetings, you have a draft document where you can work on it. Of course, there are some caveats, but at least you know uh, the topics and you know what will be the outcome a little bit and what are the controversial issues. Whereas within NATO, all these documents are classified, but you don't have a draft on which you can work. So you have to be very careful and listen carefully to the uh, pre-briefing of the Secretary General when he always gives the hints and bits and pieces of the big decision that will be taken. You have to go to national uh, press briefing, either the Turkish, the American, the French, that are generally public, where you can have some uh, some bits and pieces of what will be decided. And of course, you have to read uh, the national presses or the press review of the member states on the one hand, and also, as I would call, the hostile news uh, network, because all those who are against uh, uh, NATO, third countries, which are against NATO, are always extrapolating some news from Bits and pieces like this, you can roughly elaborate the framework of the decision that will be uh, taken. Well, we we maintain our reputation for, you know, (laughs) secrecy and classification, I suppose. Um, Yeah, it sounds like what you what you're saying is you're kind of like assembling an outline around everything that's that's going to come out of the summit based on, you know, the shadow that the the communique uh, casts. And then at the end of the day, you actually get the the piece itself. Um, So. How do you keep up with, you know, it just sounds like there's a huge volume of information that you mm-hmm. have to absorb in order to know what's happening. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you find the time to, to consult all of these sources? So it's it, it's really a kind of gymnastic, it's a kind of habit that you have to uh, screen the newswire. You have to see on uh, NATO topics what is controversial. You know that on the Turkey issue or on France or on NATO reforms, there is plenty going on, particularly on the eve of the summit, since the member states have some expectation. Everyone wants to be decision maker and not only decision shaper. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, but so you have to be very careful and read roughly. And if you have good contact within NATO and within member states, you, you, 
you have a, a, a you know a clear view about what's going on, what's controversial, where the uh, decision could be taken, and you also have to read previous uh, NATO summit declarations. It's always my advice to rookies and newcomers because things that are at the you know, 54 or 70 paragraph at the bottom end mm -hmm. of NATO by the time with the summit they go up the hill and became you know at the first third of the summit for example china was not in the past mentioned it hasn't mentioned one now it's mentioned more than 10 times and with all this you have an idea so a good journalist needs to be a gymnast <laughs> as well as an historian <laughs> sounds like it requires oh, a lot much. of preparation <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> So very, very much taking a more concrete example of what you just said, uh, for example, regarding the summit communique that has 79 points, how do you then select what is important to report back to your home country? So there's a triangle. There's a triangle, which is first, the interest of the nations of NATO as the institution, okay? this policy. So there was recommitment of uh, United States of America to NATO to Article 5. Uh, the issue of the 2% defense spending, which is coming uh, on the agenda again. And then you have to find the national angle. The national angle is the, the, the topics that might attract the attention of your audience. And to show that Turkey, for example, in my case, mm -hmm. is part of, of NATO, is part of the family, and that NATO is taking into consideration Turkey's concern, as well as Turkey has a tremendous contribution for NATO. So this is the second uh, part of the triangle. And the third part of the triangle is the controversial issues, whether there is an agreement on the controversial issues, whether they are solved or whether they are postponed. And so it's within this triangle that I do my news. And how do you cover tensions between Turkey and other allies? Because sometimes in the past there have been, you know, moments of tension um, within the alliance. There have been in the past many tensions between uh, uh, other allies, and there are now many tensions between Turkey and some allies. This is something normal. This is something uh, uh, healthy uh, because we debate, we discuss, there are differences. And what is important is that diplomacy is working. But then diplomacy is not the act to decide who's right or who's wrong uh, at the end of the process and take sides. Diplomacy is rather to pave the way for a compromise between two opposite uh, uh, opinions. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what Secretary General is doing now. Uh, and that's exactly what NATO is for. It's a forum where you can confront your opinion and find a solution. And that at the end of the day, every, every crisis that NATO has faced within its member state has found a solution and what differs NATO from other institutions is that NATO is always the biggest common denominator contrary to European Union, mm -hmm. G7 or G20, let alone the UN. It's not the smallest common denominator, it's always the biggest common denominator. That's why in this summit there is 78 or 79 articles where leaders agree. This is enormous. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing that uh, that came back to me when you were talking about this is, as you were saying earlier, like how important it is for journalists to have that appreciation of history, um, especially when covering, you know, any sort of tension between allies, because 
I guess in the moment it can seem very heated and like this is the end of the world or the end of the alliance or something. But if you know that historical scope and all of these moments in the past where there have been uh, conflicts and problems that have been resolved, then you can sort of say this is, you know, the latest issue and there will be issues in the future. And all of them have been addressed through through NATO's, uh, you know, political consultation platform. Exactly, exactly. There was an, uh, so the sixth episode of your podcast was excellent because uh, you. talking about the different, all of them were good, but in particular on that topic, referring to NATO 2030 versus the summit declaration, uh, people have tend to forget that the very initial NATO reform was the Committee of Three in 1956. And if you read the document, it's rather short. There were at the time three uh, foreign ministers. Uh, I don't know the name of two by heart because they used to have the press room at the former NATO building. Hmm. It was the Canadian Foreign Minister Pearson, the Norwegian Foreign Minister uh, Lange, and uh, there was the Italian Martino who did the the, the, the the report of three. Read these topics and read NATO 2030, read Martin Albright's report, read the Armand's report. It's still the same topic that are being discussed and they still try to find different solutions for the same topic. So... It's really important to have the background of what's going on. And NATO 2030 is a continuation of, you know, NATO 1960 and NATO 1990. Exactly. So uh, since you've spoken about, um, you know, previous decisions that were taking at previous summits, uh, we've heard that you've uh, been covering NATO summits for, for quite a while now. Um, what would you say was your favorite summit out of out of all of them? <laughs> Out of all of them, I guess that it was uh, Chicago. To, uh, Chicago summit was uh, really excellent um, because it was really important. It was a transition period, and it was really important for NATO, for the institutions. The way it has been organized as well was very, very important. And when you go to these summits, um, do you get a chance to like? appreciate and experience the cities like what is your life what is it actually like when you go to them or are you just kind of locked in a press conference room um, the whole time you know on your on your phone or your computer um, or do you actually see it you know do you get to experience life <laughs> so, so when we go outside brussels which is very very good it's also a way for nato member states and its journalists to uh, make a narrative and to explain the country and of course we go a little bit in advance uh, to uh, the city uh, in order to know exactly, because there are, it's a little bit complicated process because you have to identify first the accreditation center, then you have to identify the press center, you have to identify the location of where your leader or member state is staying, his hotel, etc. You have to find a place which is in the vicinity of this three triangle, so that uh, early morning when you go to, from your hotel, you you are able to go and work, etc. And of course, before the summit and after the summit. We take time in order to do a little piece about the, the country, uh, the city, and normally the country who is organizing, plus the city who is organizing this, is always welcoming us. So in Chicago, we had the mayor of Chicago who did a, a cocktail for the journalists and the international press. And normally every uh, every city that is hosting NATO summit, its mayor on the eve of the summit, its mayor is doing an event to present its city and uh, its food and its uh, so. We're not always locked down in a, in a dubious uh, press center. That's good that you've had to uh, you've had the opportunity to explore the different places that you go to every time you're covering a, a NATO summit. At least you've got that going for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to you know celebrate the cultures of of the allies. Yeah. 
what do journalists do between covering different sessions uh, during the NATO summit or uh, the different press conferences? If you don't tell, so if it's paid between you and I, uh, I'll tell you. <laughs> we go sitting. We try to, you know, about who wears what, how do they come into the, who, which leader came first in the meeting, uh, uh, who has been welcomed first by the Secretary General, what's the dress of one and the other, what's the little joke they did over there. So this is the first thing we do. We just go sit. And then the second thing is that this press, this atmosphere, this environment is rather very good because for us, instead of you know reading all the all the news wire, etc., uh, it's the opportunity to go and see the French, the American, the the, the English, the Spanish, the Dutch colleague, uh, well-known colleague from their media. We all of us know each other because we, it's always a bunch of you know, same person who's traveling and who's covering NATO to see what is the the very important topic for the Dutch, the Belgian, the, the French public opinion, or the French leader, and to know a little bit and some information about who will do what kind of bilateral. And then you chat with your colleague, the French, the, 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 French, the Dutch, the, the, the German, the American one, to have this, the, the, you know, his point of view and what he has got from the uh, bilateral meeting. And so we try to make an overlap of what's going on so that we have material to talk about. I mean, well, we do have a, you know, a blue carpet arrival. So why not, you know, have a little red carpet analysis of the the looks that the, the leaders are serving? <laughs> a little gossip. Uh, yeah, exactly. Why not? Um, but that does lead me talking about the camaraderie between all of the different journalists. It leads me to a question that I'm surprised that we haven't asked already, which is, I think, important, which is how do you decide which questions to ask to the NATO leaders? And uh, do you coordinate that amongst the other journalists from other sources? Yes, I mean. Um, if it's a question like, you know, on a Turkey, Greece issue, we always go and see our, our Greek colleague or they come to see us because it's hideous to ask the same question from two different journalists because anyway, the question, the answer will be the same. So mm-hmm. if someone will already ask the same question uh, and if I have two or three questions, I'll try to reduce the amount of questions to uh, uh, instead of three to two or to one. So there is any kind of informal coordination about the question, but most of the most of the people are always asking questions based on their national interest. So mm-hmm. you can see roughly who will ask on which topic to the Secretary General. So based on that, uh, we figure out the, the, the most appropriate question, which will be new, which will be something uh, that is also in the interest not only of our public opinion and audience, but also for the audience of, uh, of everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I noticed watching the the press conferences with the Secretary General and with President Biden is sometimes a journalist asks a question and um, the SecGen or, or a NATO leader says, I can't, you know, I can't. Basically, they say, you know, I can't answer that question. Um, they say, I'm not going to, you know, give an open answer about that because kind of politically they can't. Um, so I'm just wondering from a journalist point of view, like what is the value of asking those questions when you're pretty sure that you can't get a definitive answer? Because you have to ask the question as a journalist because otherwise you're, because that's your job. Yeah. <laughs> your job is to ask questions. And his job is to give the answer he wants. But at least we have to ask the question. We know that he cannot, we know that on some topic, Secretary General, since he represents the 13 member states, he cannot speculate or give his personal opinion on that. But our job is to, to show that we can ask all kinds of questions, uh, despite the fact that he has no answer. But sometimes uh, 
even though they don't, they're not allowed or politically, it shouldn't, they shouldn't give an answer. Mm -hmm. They give uh, bits and pieces of answers. So we have to force them because we're a member of 33 nations and with the press, and we should be able to ask all kinds of relevant questions, of course. But even if he doesn't answer today, he might answer tomorrow, after tomorrow. But this is also, he has to feel that there's a pressure that the public opinion wants to know about that. And I suppose that's also why sometimes when the, the leaders are, are leaving, they've, they've decided, I'm finished the press conference. We still have journalists, you know, shouting out questions for them, <laughs> um, even if it's exactly. not, you know, they don't necessarily expect to get an answer, but it's valuable to ask the question you and have to, to, get it out. to remind them that, yeah, but people you, want to know you, this. You saw, you, you saw on Geneva, you saw in Geneva that uh, uh, President Biden, people shouted questions and then he stopped, he take his jacket back. And he starts to answer, and mm -hmm. then he goes, then it was controversial, etc., etc. So we have to try. That's mm -hmm. our job. Yeah. We have to try because we ask questions on behalf of the public opinion. That's our job. So we have to, to, to put an end to all the question marks, the, pop, the relevant, huh? the mm -hmm. relevant question mark or questions that people have in mind. So no matter what it is, we have to we have to raise the issue, and then of course they're free to answer or not. Mm -hmm. Before we go, I just have one final question that I'd like to ask. Um, we talked a little bit about NATO 2030 and things for the next generation. And I was just wondering, how do you try to reach youth audiences and, and younger readers who might not subscribe to traditional media channels or be interested in, you know, these these pretty weighty topics around the NATO summit? Is that something that you have in mind ever when you're working? Always, always. So it's uh, so for them. We try to find what might you know uh, interest them. So, for example, women, peace and security is one aspect which uh, young generation, millennials and that generation are very much uh, concerned about, and showing that NATO is also taking uh, into account uh, environment issues, security-related environment issues, women, peace, security, and that. Security concern is a matter of not only old generation, but also new generation. Um, okay, so now that we know that you've listened to all the previous episodes... <laughs> what <you've>, a fan. <laughs> yeah, you probably know what question we're going to ask you to wrap this up, which is, what was your favorite part of the summit? I guess that my favorite part of the summit was uh, really this time the... Uh, uh, the end of the summit, where the choreography of the press conference between Secretary and President Biden, etc., was rather good. Uh, this was the, the first uh, uh, rather positive uh, uh, aspect. And uh, the second aspect is that after this long COVID uh, period, we were able to see colleagues again mm. and uh, chat and gossip and discuss with them. Thank you very much for this lovely conversation. Thank you very much for yeah. the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Teshe kula. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to our NATO Summit podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode where we will continue to demystify everything about the NATO Summit. And a special thanks to all our colleagues at the NATO Studio for their help recording this podcast. Make sure to subscribe on your preferred platform so you don't miss any episodes in the future. Bye. Bye.